You're listening to To Dine for the Podcast, the Shot Put Media production, presented by MasterCard. Start something priceless. What's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? My name is Kate Sullivan, and I am the host of To Dine For. I'm a journalist, a foodie, a traveler with an appetite for the stories of people who are hungry for more. Dreamers, visionaries, artists, those who hustle hard in the direction they love. I travel with them to their favorite restaurant to hear how they did it. This show is a toast to them and their American dream. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Terlato Wine Group. American National Insurance, and Spiritless. At the beginning of this podcast, I ask, what's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? While the To Dine For podcast provides the restaurants and the people, where are you getting your wine? Uncork.com is an online wine shop that brings the best part of buying wine right into your home. This carefully curated collection of wines range in price to accommodate every budget, from everyday best buys all the way to very special occasion wines. Uncork.com features family-owned wineries from all corners of the globe, California to France, Washington to Italy. If you're looking to broaden your wine horizons, learn about new producers and get great customer service, just like your local wine shop, head over to uncork.com. Use code TDF20 to get 20% off your first purchase. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For people who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, visit americannational.com dine. Before we get to the podcast, I want to share the story of three young women who are carving their own path in the beverage industry. They started a company called Spiritless. Their first product is called Kentucky 74, and it's a non-alcoholic bourbon. You can use it as the base for so many delicious mocktails or drink it by itself on the rocks. What I like to do is go halvesies, meaning you mix it with a foolproof bourbon to lower the ABV in your cocktail. I put a little honey, cinnamon, and an orange slice, and it is truly delicious. If you'd like to enjoy an evening cocktail with no guilt, you can use promo code to dine for to get free shipping. Welcome to To Dine For The Podcast, where we meet the world's most fascinating and innovative minds at their favorite restaurant. On today's episode is Sarah Gay Forden. I love telling the hidden stories, the unseen stories. And there's so much pain in the world right now. And so I think that somehow it's important to find stories that either balance the pain or that give a happy ending or give reason Sarah Gay Forden is a journalist, business reporter, and fashion reporter, and author of The House of Gucci, which delves into the history of the high-end fashion brand. It is now a major motion picture, which features Lady Gaga, Adam Driver, Al Pacino, and Salma Hayek. 
Her writing showcases her expertise within the Italian fashion industry after living in Milan for 22 years. Her experience spans business news ranging from the Wall Street Journal, the International Herald Tribune, Women's Wear Daily, W Magazine, and Bloomberg News. She interviewed more than 100 individuals who were associated with Gucci and its history for this book. Please enjoy my conversation with Sarah Gay Forden. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Kate. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm delighted to talk to you today. Uh, Likewise. Thanks for your interest. First of all, thank you for your time this morning. I I am really delighted to have you on to Dime for the podcast. There are so many questions I want to ask, but I know you spent nearly or over two decades in Milan. So I am really curious as to what restaurant you would choose as your absolute favorite. I know none of your interviews have started this way, so I'm really happy about that. You get the (laughs) scoop. (laughs) Yes. Where would you take me as as one of your favorite places to dine? Well, Kate, thank you so much for having me. And um, as all good Italians, um, I love to talk about food. So this is a great (laughs) way into this story. And I have tried pretty much all the Italian restaurants in Washington, and there are many very good ones. So it's difficult to single one out. But the one I'm going to give you is called Lupo Verde, and that means the green wolf. And they actually now have three locations in Milan, but my favorite one is the first one, and they call that Lupo Verde DC. And it's run by a chef and a crew that are from Southern Italy. So a lot of the menu is inspired by Southern Italian foods. Pastas are amazing. The salads are amazing. They have a great wine and wine selection. And they have like samplers of charcuterie. So like the, you know, meats and cheeses. But my favorite thing about it is that when you go there, you really feel like you're in Italy because all Mm. the waiters are Italian. And the best part of it, and this is going to sound really funny, but I love going to the bathroom because the bathroom is completely <laughs> wallpapered in Dolce Vita prints. So, oh, you know, wow. Anita Ekberg and Peroni beer advertisements. It's all like a black and white sort of, beautiful. you know, beer and Vespas and, and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, Anita Ekberg and the Trevi Fountain. And there's really, really loud Italian music blasting in the bathroom. I love it. I love it. So Lupo Verde is in D.C., correct? Yes. And you love it because in a way it transports you back to Italy. Exactly. Yes. Oh, that's beautiful. That's really beautiful. And they have a little terrace. So when it's nice out, you can sit outside. They do a great uh, aperol spritz. And then, of course, all the food is is delicious. They do a great uh, pizza. Um, So you can't go wrong. The Italians really know how to eat, don't they? And they know how to live. And it's actually the simple, exactly right. It's the simple things, you know, and I'm going back to Italy in um, June for my grad school reunion and we're talking about restaurants and where to go. And I thought, you know, it doesn't need to be fancy because no. just the simple food there is is some of the best and yes. you don't have to really, you know, jazz it up with fancy sauces. It's really about the quality of the food. And it's how they eat. It's it's the the time that they take over a meal. It's the relaxation that happens. It is the the room to breathe between courses and to the emphasis on conversation that is so remarkable, I think, about dining in Italy. Don't you? Absolutely. Absolutely right. When we moved back here, with uh, my daughter was 14 and she said, you know, mom, you know, Americans, when they, and she, you know, she was born in Milan. She said, Americans, when they get an idea in their head, they will just go straight to the target and nothing will dissuade them. 
but Italians really know how to live. Mm. So I said to her, Julia, if you can balance those two things, you will really have figured it all out. And what do you think she meant by that? I, I mean, I, 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 I say the same thing and, and I feel that, but I'm wondering what your daughter meant. I think she meant what you said, like taking the time to put a tablecloth on the table, just like taking the time to appreciate the good things and the quality things. And yes. that doesn't mean that you can't do the hard things and do the work because actually the Italians are some of the hardest working people I know. You know, it's not a manana culture by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. And uh, the people that I, you know, was working alongside of Milan were often working, you know, late, uh, long hours, late into the night, but they do it in a way that's more integrated with their lives. Take me to you in college, what you wanted to be, what you aspired to be, and then how you ended up in Milan. Oh, that's a great question. Um, I actually went into college being feeling really lost and mm. unfocused. And I, I thought I liked writing and it was really in college that I knew that I wanted to be a writer, mm. but I didn't really know how I was going to make a living being a writer. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and so I ended up becoming a journalist. And I'm actually mm-hmm. coming back to this dynamic right now. I mean, journalism is a lot of writing, but it's not the same as being a writer. Right. It wasn't until I was back in DC working as a journalist, and then I had actually moved over into more sort of the public information realm that I really, I realized that I absolutely missed living overseas. And I had traveled uh, with my family as a child growing up. My father worked for the government and we moved every three years. So Mm. I was born in Germany, lived in Poland, lived in um, Argentina, lived in Mexico City. And so I was missing that exposure to language and to culture. And so I decided to go to grad school in um, Italy. And that was through the Johns Hopkins program for economics and international affairs. Well, who goes to Italy to study economics? Well, (laughs) I did. And it was fantastic. And at that point, I decided I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. I spoke fluent Italian. I understood the business and economic vocabulary because all of our courses were very much sort of based on current events and news. And so I ended up in Milan in uh, 1988, um, working for actually for an Italian newspaper initially. And were you a business correspondent at the time? Yes. You were a business correspondent in an Italian newspaper. What was that experience like? You know, I spent a lot of time reading, just reading Italian, you know, news, financial news. Um, I was studying statistics. This paper, most Italian papers had what they called a research office, like an ufficio studi, mm-hmm. where they had economists who were developing charts and analysis. So I was working with that team. So I actually learned a lot, a lot of basic things about how markets work that I hadn't actually learned in school. So it was actually like a great education. And then I moved from there to be a business correspondent for my first sort of job for a U.S. company was with Dow Jones in Milan. So when you think of Milan, it is truly the fashion capital, certainly of Italy, if not the world, right? It, it, the fashion and business go hand in hand when it comes to Milan. So at some point in your career, you became an expert and you really put a lot of focus on fashion news. How did that happen? Well, it was exactly in that moment that I was working for Dow Jones and I was you know, a young um, wire reporter, basically. 
And we had a whole a slew of comments, market comments we had to write every day. And it was the dollar comment and the stock market comment and the Mediterranean oil comment. And of course, this gets to be tiresome very quickly. And I'm thinking, I don't want to spend the rest of my life writing market comments. Um, <laughs> and it was right about that time that I realized that the big business in Milan was actually the fashion business. So it was mm. just beginning then. Mm. And it was Giorgio Armani and Gianni Versace, and they were kind of the pillars of this world. And then there, were, there was Crizia, which doesn't even exist anymore. There was Missoni. There was Gianfranco Ferre, who also doesn't exist anymore. And I thought, well, that's a fun industry to write about from sure. a business perspective. So I started writing stories. And my first, actually, my first um, big story was Maurizio Gucci's press conference in Milan in 1991, where he was going to turn around his, he, he had acquired 50%. He brought in his financial partner, Invescore. He kicked out his relatives. And it was his vision for how he was going to turn Gucci around and take it up market. And because Dow Jones at the time was the sort of feed for the journal, my story was on the front page of the Wall Street Journal the next day. And that's oh when goodness. I realized, oh, people really want to hear about this. And then shortly after that, I was hired by Women's Wear Daily to be their business writer. And that's isn't kind of this crazy. Okay, first of all, I love listening to this career trajectory. I think this is very inspiring to a lot of people who are listening and thinking to themselves, isn't it funny how we we start off on one path and then life kind of meanders us and takes us maybe even closer to our passion, to our interest. I'm really, really fascinated by your story. So I read this article that said that you knew that you wanted at some point to write a book and that you Googled Gucci and up came all these articles that you had written. Is this true? That is absolutely true. So <laughs> I think, you know, it's probably common for beat reporters to have this hankering to write, you know, dig their teeth into something longer and more serious and more, more meaningful and more lasting, you know? And uh, that was certainly the case with me, but I just, I, I knew that I, I'm a journalist. I'm not a novelist. You know, what can I write about? And I was actually home in the D.C. area visiting family, and my dad wanted to show me the new Quincy Library in Arlington, Virginia. And I walked in, and there was a computer. For the first time, they'd moved the old card catalog off to the side, and there was a computer in the research department. And I thought, well, let's see what it can do. Oh, wow. And this was back in the era when Google still spit out 10 blue links. That's, yes. That's now I'm reporting on, you know, tech policy and, and the power of big tech companies. So, you know, that was part of, of Google's trajectory, too. And I typed in Gucci because it was very much on my mind. And of those 10 blue links, eight of them were stories that I had written. And that's that was the light bulb moment. And the light bulb said to you, this is the book that I should write. Yes. We'll have more on this conversation in just a minute. But first, thank you to our sponsors. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. 
From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. If you're like me, there are times when you want to feel like you're having a fancy cocktail, but you don't actually want the alcohol. So I love Kentucky 74 from Spiritless. It's a distilled, non-alcoholic spirit for your favorite bourbon cocktails, but with just 15 calories per serving and none of the guilt. You can pre-order your bottle today at spiritless.com. Use the promo code to dine for to get free shipping. To Dine For the podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. It seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. American National agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm, or your life, you can count on your local American National agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write in the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com slash dine. At the beginning of this podcast, I ask, what's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? While the To Dine For podcast provides the restaurants and the people, where are you getting your wine? Uncork.com is an online wine shop that brings the best part of buying wine right into your home. This carefully curated collection of wines range in price to accommodate every budget, from everyday best buys all the way to very special occasion wines. Uncork.com features family-owned wineries from all corners of the globe, California to France, Washington to Italy. If you're looking to broaden your wine horizons, learn about new producers and get great customer service, just like your local wine shop, head over to uncork.com. Use code TDF20 to get 20% off your first purchase. Now back to our conversation. So you have the idea. How do you begin the process of thinking and shaping and writing a book? Because at this point, this is new to you, correct? Right. So the, the, the great thing that I had was I had at that point, I had covered Gucci for six years for Women's Wear Daily. So I knew kind of the key moments in the story, and I knew many of the people who had been involved in the story. And I'd actually just kind of batted around some ideas with one of my editors. So he helped me with the shaping. And then I had to confront the process of, of how do I get help with this and, and who do I need to get make this happen? And I decided that I should probably hire an agent. And at that point in, in the publishing industry, there were still examples of, of authors who had gotten sold books without agents. Mm -hmm. I actually recently spoke with a publisher and she said, you know, that was kind of the end of that. And pretty much any, any writer who wants to sell a book, uh, you know, after that period really needed to have an agent. 
And so I asked uh, two of my friends, a married couple who worked in publishing in Milan, I asked them if they could give me some advice. And they gave me three names. And the first one was Ellen Levine, who was really big at the time, and she still is, um, because uh, she was the agent on The English Patient, which ah. was huge at the time. So they said, go to Ellen, and um, if she takes you on, just stop and don't go to the other two. Okay. She's and, the best. So and did was, she take you on? She took me on. Okay. I'm interested when you, when you're beginning, because you're writing this nonfiction book, right? This is, as you said, not a novel. I know that you interviewed, you know, at least a hundred people to get the, to do the research, to write this book. As you're writing it in the back of your mind, are you thinking cinematically like this could be a movie or oh, sort yeah. of what, what is your MO as you're writing the book? I mean, again, I didn't really know anything about how to, you know, it was, I barely knew how to get a book done. But I could just see it on a big screen as I was writing it. And, I, and the story was so dramatic. And, mm -hmm. you know, one of the scenes, which actually isn't in the movie, but that I had really visualized was the scene where after Maurizio Gucci has lost control of the company, you know, and this is like, this is like losing like your child. I mean, mm -hmm. it's even more, it's like losing your parents and your children all at once. And it's early, early one morning in Milan, five or six in the morning. And Milan was very foggy in those, in those years. So there's fog and his press former his press woman was in the Gucci offices in Piazza San Fedele, which is just right behind La Scala. And she'd gone in early for a presentation to get the press kits ready. And she looks out of the window down to the, the piazza below, and she sees a figure sitting on one of the benches, stone benches, looking up at the windows. And it's a man in a trench coat, and she realizes it's Maurizio. Mm. And so to me, like that, and I painted that scene. Mm. And so to me, that was like, that's the story of law, you know, one of the many stories of loss in this, in this narrative. But isn't that interesting? Because that is a, a, a muscle that you have never really been able to flex as a reporter, as a journalist, you know, to be able to visualize and to paint that scene. Um, it is not fiction, it is real, but to, to bring it to life, like creatively, what did that do for you to be able to write scenes like that? So that is really one of my long lost dreams. And I had, you know, you smartly asked me about college. Well, I had taken this amazing class in college called literary journalism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was an English major, but I was really interested in developing my own writing. You know, we did all the literary criticism classes, but the ones that really sort of lit my fire were, were the descriptive writing and the, mm -hmm. and the literary classes. And, and so this was looking at, you know, all the great American writers like Tom Wolfe and Richard Rhodes and John Updike. And it was all about taking the techniques of fiction to tell real life stories. And I actually published my first story in the um, Hampshire Daily Gazette, which was the Northampton, uh, Massachusetts um, newspaper. And it was about a local woman who ran a diner and I realized that she was bringing in people who had been deinstitutionalized. This was during the Reagan years. These are, uh, you know, when all the mental hospitals were closed. Mm -hmm. And these were people who all of a sudden from one day to the next found themselves on the street and had no sort of tools to take care of themselves. And she would let them come in the diner, you know, on a cold night and give them a cup of coffee and give them mm -hmm. a warm place to sit. And so I wrote the story about Ma and the Red Line Diner. So that was like my passion. And I was like, well, no one's going to pay me a living to write stories about 
you know, ma and diners. So my teacher at the time, he was also a writer. He was a writer in residence at Smith College, Mark Kramer. He said, you know, you got to go out and you just have to write miles of sentences. And that's kind of part of the training of a writer. You got to write miles and miles of sentences. And so I went on and I wrote, you know, miles of sentences over years until I could finally really try my hand at it in a more significant way with this book. It's so fascinating because I interview all sorts of different types of people on this podcast and and the PBS show. And, you know, everyone has a similar experience where they they sort of doubt themselves when they get close to what they love or what they feel like is their passion or just what they hope to do in the world. And they, for some reason, there's a sense of doubt. And, And the people who are truly successful always end up coming back to that, right? Just like you did with that descriptive writing that really isn't a part of writing for certainly not as a business reporter, right? But it came out in one way or another, didn't it? Right. Well, and I figured when I did go back into into journalism, I thought, well, I can write like business reporting, you know, has a market so I can make a good living, but then I can write about the people behind the businesses because every business has a person and has a vision. And so one of the things that drew me into the Gucci story was actually Maurizio Gucci's vision Mm. and the need for an entrepreneur to have a kind of a steadfast vision that's going to carry him or her through, you know, ups and downs of achieving, you know, that vision. And so I was very intrigued by that determination and that focus and how a person keeps that. It, it is fascinating, isn't it? That, that it, it almost borderlines delusion in some cases. You know, the really successful entrepreneurs, the really successful founders and CEOs, their belief is teetering on the edge of seeing what does not exist. They have to see it almost into being. Right. It's so true. I love I love that. I just actually did a book talk about a, a book about Amadeo Giannini, who was an Italian immigrant who created Bank of America. Mm-hmm. And he actually saw things that didn't exist when he started. I mean, he had he started from nothing and he created the biggest bank in the country. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's very a really well put, well crystallized. Let's talk about the success, not only of your book, but also the film and having Lady Gaga. I mean, who knew when you began to write this book that all of this would transpire? Were you a part of the making of the film as well? So I was not involved in the production, but I did consult with the screenplay writer. And what what was that like? What was that experience like? That was fantastic. So they had gone through, I mean, this, this project had been in development for over a decade. And they had optioned my book as part of their resources. And they, I was not in touch with the Ridley Scott people at the time. But after I moved back to the States, I did meet up with their people in Los Angeles on a business trip. And it was shortly after that that they told me they'd attached a new screenplay writer to the project. And he was a young Italian screenplay writer named Roberto Bentivegna. And he had grown up in Milan, just like my daughter, um, gone to high school and then moved to London uh, with his parents, who are both Italian. And his mother had worked for Armani for about 30 years. So he knew, like internally, he knew what that sort of fashion business moment was like in Milan. And so he really got the story. 
And we started a collaboration, mostly just long phone calls, talking about the story, the characters, the tensions, the motivations. You know, he was very interested in sort of developing the characters and what motivated each of the characters. And what did you think of the film when you first saw it? Well, when I first saw it, it was just like, it was like sort of, I was kind of, it was almost like an out of body experience because I was so close to the story and it was so incredible to see it told in such power, you know, the language of the, of the big screen is, is, is very powerful. And it almost like made me relive it in a way. Mm -hmm. And especially, I found myself especially impacted by the death of Maurizio Mm -hmm. at the end. It made it even more real, even though I had like, I had been on the scene, you know, the day of the murder, I had covered it. I'd covered the investigation. You know, I had been there every step of the way and somehow it just, it drove it home in an even more profound way. What was your takeaway from not only covering it as a journalist, but writing the story? What is your big takeaway from that story? Oh, the big takeaway is, you know, money doesn't bring happiness. And that, you know, in the end, kindness is so important. So important. And trust. Exactly. Exactly. You alluded to this at the beginning of the conversation that there's a difference between a writer and a journalist. And now you are both. Yeah. So <laughs> what, what, what do you enjoy more and how does this inform what you'd like to do in the future? I mean, I love the adrenaline of journalism and I love the uh, sort of chase uh, on a good story. I mean, I've always in my career been able to kind of create new coverage areas where they didn't exist previously. For example, at Bloomberg, I, I started our coverage of the luxury goods market. Um, mm-hmm. I started our coverage of financial crimes investigations. Mm-hmm. Now in DC, I started our coverage of corporate influence and how companies you know, use levers of power in Washington. So I, I love that. I love telling the hidden stories, the unseen stories. I think as a writer, and now I'm really reconnecting with that part, you know, thanks also to the renewed focus on the book. I think I like telling stories that people need to hear. I would like to tell more stories that have heart, like you said. Mm -hmm. And there's so much pain in the world right now. And so I think that somehow it's important to find stories that either balance the pain or that give a happy ending or give reason for the pain. Like like even in, in picking and deciding to write about Gucci, I didn't pursue a book idea for many years because it was such a tragic story. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, Maurizio losing the company, uh, Maurizio being killed, his wife, ex-wife being arrested. And it wasn't until the company started to turn around that I thought, well, there's there's a rebirth here. And even though Maurizio and the Gucci family weren't in place and weren't able to execute it, it was still built on what they had done. And so I wanted to I wanted to sort of make the cement that connection. And what do you think of the Gucci brand now? And do you think it's a, it's reflective of what the family wanted it to be? So I think there's two two answers to that. I think that, you know, if Maurizio, and I've talked to people who were very close to Maurizio, if he saw the fashions today, he would say, that's not what I had in mind for Gucci at all. But I think if you were to ask him, well, do you, what do you think of the, the global power of the Gucci brand today? I think he would say, that's always what I envisioned for mm-hmm. it. And I, I, you know, he knew that it could have this 
appeal and this weight on a global marketplace. So it is far greater than an Italian brand and an Italian symbol of of style and elegance. It is it is global. So it's become, you know, the brand. The, it's become in many ways even more than what he had visualized. He had visualized it as an Italian Hermes, so very mm-hmm. classic. But even Hermes today, you know, they've all had to become fashion brands to sort of stay current and mm-hmm. to stay relevant. So mm-hmm. uh, I think he would be, be pleased with the, with the scope um, of the brand, if not with all the designs. Are you working on a project that you can talk about or can you indicate or give us a little hint of what's next for you? I mean, right now I'm just doing research. I would love to find another compelling story. Mm -hmm. There's a lot out there, but there's also a lot being done. You know, it's very challenging, I think, to find a story like Gucci that has all the elements. So it has the family dynasty, the fashion, sort of the sex appeal of that industry, a murder, a financial takeover battle, a relaunch, a rebirth. So there's there's like 12 narratives packed into this one story. So I may end up going in a different different direction altogether because I think it's hard to match all the pieces of that story and something else. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that story was made for TV. You couldn't have written it. It was tr- so fascinating. Uh, the emotional resonance of so many aspects of the story, not only what it meant to Italian culture, but what a, what, what a just incredible spectator sport of, of watching it unfold. So that was an incredible story to write. It really, really was. I am truly fascinated to find out what is next for you. And I will um, wait. <laughs> I will wait like we all will and, and hope that there's another book coming. But this has been so wonderful. I love to hear how things get started and how things are created. And in a way, you creating this book is, you know, has the same blueprint as anyone creating a company or, or, or founding something is you're, you're bringing something to life with this book. So it's been really interesting to hear your story. Thank you so much. And thanks for your thoughtful questions. It's been great talking with you. Enjoy your day. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to To Dine For The Podcast. For more information on the show, the guests and the podcast, head to todinefortv.com. You can find us on Instagram at todinefortv and Facebook at To Dine For with Kate Sullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of To Dine For, the podcast, American National, Spiritless, and Terlato Wine Group. Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Golner. To the loyal followers of this program, cheers, stay hungry, and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.